I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On the next episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk China and de-risking. We'll talk U.S.-India. And finally, we'll actually get to the NFL playoffs, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Trade guys, a belated happy new year. I'm so happy to be back with you and forgive me for my absences the last couple of weeks. You guys know I had urgent business in the Crescent City, which was taken care of. It was 25 degrees in New Orleans the other day. My poor son had to drip water out of his, his pipes at his house so the pipes wouldn't explode. It's cold here. It's cold all over America, but it's a new year and there's lots of trade to talk about. So welcome, welcome back to the show. Well, welcome back to you. We missed you. Uh, Thibaut did a great job. And if you continue to be absent frequently, we may replace you. But for the time being. <laughs> well, that, that's what I hear. That's why I, scrambled, that's why I scrambled back. It's also, look, it's also playoff football season and we have a lot to talk about with that so we're going to get to that just trying to keep you on your toes andrew That's yeah no all. believe me i know t-bold is doing amazing subbing in so thanks big shout out to him for that guys let's talk china let's start off the year talking china for the first time in 2023 data showed that china exported to southeast asia more than to the united states this is as a result of de-risking etc Guys, what about this? Is de-risking effective if goods purchased from third countries like Mexico, Vietnam, are of Chinese origin? Does it matter? Well, look, uh, something we mentioned on the program a few weeks back is that uh, globalization is always changing. It's, it doesn't go away, mostly because the things that the technological advances that allow for globalization are never really forgotten. You know, once you once you know how to do modern logistics with uh, information and communication technologies at the container level. You don't forget how to do that. And those, those improvements, uh, which, which tend to reduce the barriers toward the movement of goods, services, people, and ideas, are not forgotten. They're always maintained. So globalization is always with us. It changes in, based on factors, whether they're domestic politics or demographics or, or economic policy of all sorts. There are many reasons that globalization can change. Uh, in the case of U.S.-China trade, one of the things that is appears to me to be fundamentally driving this is demographic change in China. Uh, roughly a decade ago, China began to reach a peak in its working age population. I think it was 2012 or 2013, somewhere around there. The working age population in China peaked and began to slowly decline. Well, now that's been happening for a decade. And officially last year, China had an overall population decline, slight, but still a decline in all of 2023 versus 2022. So China is, is becoming more, less populous as a country. Now, there's still some things. First of all, they still have a relatively open trade policy 
uh, profile for a developing country. They still do manufacturing at scale highly efficiently. But because the population is shrinking, there's pressure on la- upward pressure on labor costs. The upward pressure on labor costs allows other nations nearby with, with, who are less developed to uh, capture business from them. That appears to be happening in places like Vietnam, which we've talked about before. So there's a, there's a, a major trend here. In addition, uh, it appears that China is uh, expanding its opportunities as they are created, such as the one we discussed last week, which is automobiles in Russia and automobiles in Mexico are, are both export opportunities for China that are more developed now than they were a year ago. All this is just the kind of shifting and changing that tends to go on all the time. We tend to notice it more in the, in the when we compare the bilateral accounts of these two behemoths, the United States and China. But in this case, what, what underlies it is the demographics are going to produce tougher economic times in China. I'd watch the property market. I'd watch whether they start re- reissuing the youth unemployment report because they, they stopped. That's usually a bad sign. But there's, uh, there's a lot unfolding there that is about domestic policy and, and uh, domestic demographics that are spilling over into trade. Apparently, just as an aside, apparently they've started publishing the youth unemployment report again, but they're using different criteria. Uh, so the number is lower. I thought what was interesting about uh, the statistic that Andrew began with uh, was um, that it what it, it shows is something that we haven't talked about before, and that's the number of uh, Chinese companies that are moving to Southeast Asia. We've talked a lot about Western companies, American companies de-risking, either leaving China or creating redundant capabilities elsewhere so that they don't get caught in a choke point, you know, a single point of manufacture where they rely on one producer for one thing uh, in China, uh, where they risk, you know, economic coercion, they political decision to cut it off, or, you know, natural disaster, there's earthquakes or, or COVID and, and plant shutdowns. So that has led to greater uh, U.S. investment in a variety of Southeast Asian countries. Vietnam is the biggest winner, but I think you're going to see more in other countries as time goes on. And more U.S. production there, including the importation of some parts and components from China to uh, assembly plants and elsewhere. But the uh, interesting thing that's new is the Chinese companies seem to be doing the same thing. And they're leaving China for these other places, too. We can speculate about why that is. I I think it's partly a response to exactly what Scott said, which is demographics. A decline in population, a decline in working age population or slower growth in working age population. And it has led to increases in wages and worker shortages in in some places. So the companies are responding by going to places where there's cheaper labor and more workers. It may also, interestingly, be a response to Chinese economic policy, which is focusing more and more on state-owned enterprises, SOEs, and is focusing more and more on making sure that its companies, private and SOEs, uh, are ideologically correct by installing party officials in, you know, in all the companies to make sure that they are following uh, Xi Jinping thought. That may turn out for the private companies to be a little bit too much. And so one thing we're seeing is simply 
Chinese companies doing the same thing that the American companies are doing. The other thing we're seeing that related to this, which we've talked about before in the context of solar panels, which is not a good thing, is what's known in trade wonk terms as circumvention, which is the United States discovers Chinese imports being dumped, being sold below the cost of production, or subsidized by the Chinese government. And we've been through this with steel, with aluminum, with wind turbines, with solar panels. Uh, we're about to face it with legacy chips and cars, EVs in particular. When that happens, we have a process. Every country, including China, has a process for imposing duties to offset the amount of the dumping or subsidy. And we've employed those tools in some of these sectors effectively. Of course, as is always true in trade, you know, for every response, there's an equal and opposite counter response. And one of the responses that Chinese can do is to get around these additional tariffs by shipping their stuff to, to a third country, relabeling it as made in that country, and then shipping it to the United States as a product of Vietnam or Malaysia. In the solar panel case, the accusation, and, and commerce found them guilty, is that that was what was happening with solar panels coming from Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, and um, the fourth country that I've forgotten at the moment. I just got invited to a party at the Malaysian embassy. Well, see if they have solar panels on the roof, Andrew. That would be... <laughs> I'm going to check. Maybe ask them about that. But these are cases of, I mean, there's different ways to circumvent. The simplest one is you peel off the made in China label and put on the made in Malaysia label and you don't do anything to the product. That's not only circumvention, that's customer fraud. And that's, uh, yeah, you know, that's a crime. Uh, and if you get caught, bad things happen to you. The more subtle thing is you perform some modest changes to the product in the third country. You know, you do a paint, you, you paint it, say, or you perform some operation on it, or you do some minor assembly that constitutes a small percentage of the total value of the product. And then you, then you claim it as a product of that, uh, that country, Vietnam or Malaysia. There are customs rules about that. And if your transformation in that country is de minimis, then that's also fraud. Uh, but uh, you can do it in a way that it actually changes the nature of the product enough that you can legitimately say uh, it is now a product of that country. The classic example is steel, where the Chinese will export steel slabs, which are just large chunks of steel, to another country. And in that country, it gets rolled into shapes, sheet, a coil, wire, strip. And under customs rules, if, it do, if they do that there, that makes it a different product in a different tariff schedule. And that's a way to avoid the, the, the Chinese dumping duties. So in any event, all of it is circumvention of one form or another. Some of it's legal circumvention, some of it is illegal circumvention. But I have a feeling that there's a good bit of that going on as well, too. And I think the IMF has just put, produced some interesting data. This came up, at, we did a webinar yesterday on IPEF, as it turned out. And Mark Mealy of the U.S. ASEAN Business Council brought this data point up, which is that, that the IMF data suggests that, that um, Chinese exports to the United States have declined by about the same amount as U.S. imports from Southeast Asian countries have increased. And it's a reasonable conclusion that uh, a lot of that is because 
of what I was just talking about, that the Chinese have found a way around our rules by shipping this stuff to third countries and either transforming it or relabeling it and getting it in here. And now we scramble with our tools to try to catch up and do something about that. Okay. So ultimately, what's the purpose of the U.S. importing from third countries? Are we actually achieving our objectives? With respect to China? Yeah. Well, uh, it means no, not entirely. We've done, uh, we've, in some cases, steel being a good example, we've significantly reduced their market share, direct market share, through these anti-dumping and anti-subsidy cases. But yeah, if it's just, it's, it's, if it's leaking in through other places, you know, it kind of defeats the purpose. And so that's, as with everything else in trade, it's a constant cat and mouse game. You got to file new complaints. You got to go after them again. And, you know, it's expensive and time. Let me, let me just hold out the hope that some of this may be legitimate uh, decisions made by legitimate firms to produce. Yes, that too. I don't want to say it's all, I don't want to say it's all crooked. Uh, I think some of it is. Yes. Uh, I mean, look, regional supply chains were essentially created by a, a population bust in Japan. Japan ran out of workers for, and had these had these fabulously successful electronics and automobile companies. And they METI, the they're the essentially the Japanese Department of Commerce, went out and helped the companies create suppliers in what became known as the Asian Tigers to uh, assist in in the supply chain fulfillment and production of these vehicles that had Japanese brand names. So this is a, this is a story we've seen before. But I at one time uh, had a presentation for for middle schoolers <clears throat> about globalization, which was globalization in seven Happy Meal toys. And I collected well, I like my, daughter, my daughter's Happy Meal toys. Now, Happy Meal toys were first very high quality and second free. And you could tell each one had a sticker on the bottom of where it was made. And you could tell over time that the the cap- the competence for producing Happy Meals changed year on year. Uh, it, and and the, the oldest toy they had was was made in Taiwan. The newest toy they had was made in China. And there, there were all, like all the stops at the Asian Tigers in between. It, it, it was hilarious, but it demonstrated the point that that the, this economic development has these kinds of effects. And good globalized manufacturers. And marketers know how to take advantage of that. And that's a lot of why this goes on. Do members of Congress know that there are Chinese toys and Happy Meals next to the Freedom Fries? Um, if they have children, they do. But uh, I can't they're comment. probably looking at the story. bottom for stickers. That's a, uh, a new thing. And uh, well, it's not a new thing. It's, it's happened before. One of my favorite stories was when I was working for Senator Hines, the, the Pennsylvania congressional delegation would have periodic lunches with Pennsylvania constituents um, in the Capitol building. And basically it was, you know, anybody who wanted to pay for lunch would be, uh, could be invited to, to come. And, and uh, most of the senators and the congressmen would show up. And I remember one where the, the host was the specialty steel industry. And these are the people that make basically stainless steel. I mean, they made my hip, uh, but they make, among other things, they make utensils, knives, forks, you know, the stuff you eat with. And it was fun to watch because while they were making their pitch, you could see the, the congressman at the table examining the silverware and, you know, checking out. And, you know, and on the knives, you have to put country of origin on it. 
And at one point, one of the congressmen says, my God, this is made in Taiwan. You know, we can't have this. (laughs) These should be made out of American steel. And they turned it into a big thing. And uh, it ended up with Congressman Murtha, who was on the Appropriations Committee at the time, getting into the Appropriations the great, great uh, he got Jack into the appropriations Murtha. bill of uh, a requirement and, and money to pay for getting all the silverware in the house cafeteria American. And they had a big ceremony one day out, I guess, in the, the Rayburn building cafeteria where they had these giant trash cans and they had Murtha and some other people throwing the old silverware into the trash cans and rolling out the new silverware, which came from Oneida in New York. And that goes back a long way. So people do check the labels. Yeah, when you're spending taxpayer dollars, it's really easy to do now, that the, sort of thing. The other right? thing that's worth noting sure. here is uh, one of the other things that happened when Scott's story is the Japanese did another thing that was very clever, particularly with cars, which is they moved here. They didn't just move to third yes. countries. They moved to the United States under a lot of pressure in the 80s to deal with imports. This was a case where our trade policy had a kind of an unexpected effect. Their response to the pressure on 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 cars and threatened, you know, threatened the tariffs, which were never implemented at the time, was uh, they set up manufacturing plants here. Honda built a plant in Marysville, Ohio. That was the first one. Toyota has a big one in, in Indiana and multiple ones are in other places. And then the Europeans followed suit. And it was brilliant because what they did was create constituents. So all of a sudden you had several thousand people in Ohio who worked for Honda you know, and that gave them a somewhat different view about the auto industry than they had before. And what you've got now is, I think, a, uh, a public opinion in the United States that has a very different view about cars than it did in, say, 1986. And a lot of it is because the Japanese moved here and they moved and they didn't just move. It wasn't just slapping the nameplate on. You know, as I think we said before, several years ago, the, the automobile, the uh, that had the highest percentage of American content was the Toyota Camry. And I, I don't think they do any more. It changes from year to year, but I think it was 84%. So they really did move here, and they moved here for content uh, as well as just pro forma. Well, so guys, which countries are benefiting from this realignment of global trade flows? I would say Vietnam and Mexico are the big winners as far as we're concerned. Definitely. Uh, and the, the, for two different reasons. Vietnam is sort of the up and coming Southeast Asian partner and uh, has some cost advantages, but also very entrepreneurial culture, has have a lot of the, the investment connections throughout Southeast Asia and Mexico because of, uh, of USMACA, frankly. The, Mexico has, has always been sort of the, a key opportunity place for access to the U.S. market at essentially zero duties. Now, that requires investment. It requires work to build operations, but I would agree with Bill. Those are the two, both potential and actual beneficiaries. Well, the Mexicans' other advantage is proximity. They don't have to worry about ocean shipping. They don't have to worry about air freight costs. I mean, they can, but a a lot of the manufacturing in question is is just south of the border. Uh, You know, it's not deep into Mexico. So it's a relatively short truck ride. I mean, getting across, getting a truck across the Mexican US border is not the easiest thing in the world. But when you compare it to, you know, a 10 day, two week ocean shipping uh, expedition and the costs associated with that, it's simple. All right, guys, I want to get to this weekend's NFL playoffs in a minute. But first, let's keep talking (laughs) trade. 
let's talk about the the U.S. India Trade Policy Forum, which just concluded last week with a joint statement from both countries. What were the areas of progress, and what do you guys think still needed to be addressed? I don't think they made a lot of progress, to tell you the truth. I mean, they never make a lot of progress with the Indians. Trade is increasing, and they highlighted that. That's a good thing. They previously settled a number of outstanding uh, WTO cases, also a good thing. And most of them were settled with India withdrawing its complaints and making, I think, de facto concessions. But I don't think they broke ground on very many things. The big Indian ask for a couple years has been they want back into GSP, the Generalized System of Preferences, which is a program that gives uh, zero duties for developing countries. They were kicked out, uh, I think, in the uh, I think in the Trump administration. But then GSP uh, ran out; it, it, its authorization expired. We're going on now. I think now more than two years. It's not been renewed, or actually more than I guess more than a year. It's not been renewed. The Indians badly want back in. Ambassador Tai has explained multiple times that unless Congress acts, nobody gets back in. And then it, if if it's renewed, then the the USGR has to make a decision about whether to let them back in. So no progress on that. I think uh, we are complaining. One of our big asks is India has imposed some Im- licensing requirements for imports of computers, tablets, and, and services, sort of trying to restrict their high-tech market. And we've complained about that vigorously, and I don't think much has happened about that. They have made some, a couple previous agriculture concessions on alfalfa or hay, uh, and um, uh, one other product, I don't remember what it was, and they don't seem to be following through on that. Uh, So we complained about pork was the other one, but they don't seem to have followed through on that. So there were a lot of commitments to have further cooperation on things, but I didn't see a lot of concrete accomplishments. Did you, Scott? Uh, No. Look, the background is the U.S.-India trade relations have always been chippy. It's kind of like Browns and and the Ravens. You know, they get together. (laughs) There's so much alike. Or Steelers and the Ravens. Yes, exactly. Steelers, Ravens. There's so much alike in mentality and outlook and and, 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 that they can't get along. And, you know, the U.S. and India actually have a lot in common when you look at it. We're the world's oldest democracy. They're the world's largest uh, they're peaceful, um, multi-party, multi-ethnic state. There's the most successful, at least economically successful, uh, ethnic group in the United States are Indian Americans. They're tremendously successful here. And the, the Indian companies are, are made up of these people, and they have, a, they have the same sort of common law legal system. There's a lot that we ought to be able to work together on. But we never seem to. And the trade barriers remain high. They've always been uh, high and difficult to, uh, and to uh, get any movement on. So here you have China, where we have, all, we have very little in common with them politically. But China has a trade policy that makes it one of the most open developing economies. And uh, there's a lot of practical uh, experience that goes into producing at scale in China that you could not deliver in, in India. So there's, it's one of these things. There's, there's, there's room for improvement in this relationship as, a, as an understatement. We should be able to do better. 
we for some other reason we always underperform. And I think Bill's summary is the usual list of we tried and got frustrated. But uh, at some point, this is going to change. I don't know when. Yeah, maybe not in my so, lifetime. Right. So that brings me to the question, and we are going to get to the Ravens in a minute. Don't worry, listeners. What can we look forward to in the U.S.-India relationship regarding trade? More of the same. More dialogue. I think the relationship's becoming a lot more complicated because on, on the one hand, I think there's a strategic interest in getting closer, which is they have a lot of problems with China, including a border dispute with China. And it's in our interest to get, you know, it's the old, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend um, kind of thing. It's, it's an interest. We have an interest in getting closer to India for geostrategic reasons. At the same time, these, I guess I have to say, alleged plots to assassinate various dissidents that are in Canada and the United States that are allegedly uh, being led by the Indian government have made the relationship a lot more complicated the Canadian government announced an investigation into a plot to assassinate, I, I think, a, a Sikh leader that was uh, that was uh, once an independent state in India. The guy was was assassinated, and the Canadian government alleged that the Indian government was behind that, which the Indian government denied. And then there was a similar plot in the United States that was foiled. Uh, nothing happened. And the United States government has not said a lot about that, but it appears that one of the issues that in question is was the Indian government also involved in that one. That's made all aspects of the relationship a lot more complicated. I think, you know, the Modi government has also taken a number of turns to the right lately in terms of trying to influence the press and trying to silence dissident voices. And it's also uh, taken a turn to the right in terms of promoting uh, Hinduism at the expense of other religions in in India. And there are lots of other religions in India, including a substantial Muslim community, which feels uh, ill-treated. So there's a growing view in the United States that the things that we cherish about India, you know, democracy, freedom, the diversity, and the tolerance of diversity are eroding uh, in this regime. Uh, At the same time, it's more than ever in our interest to get closer to them. So I think it's a dilemma. Yeah, I, I think that's the right point, Bill. Is that, look, there, there's a strategic interest in finding something to cooperate on. And that's what I'd let drive the relationship. Let's, let's pick some economic sectors, probably high tech. I, I'm not sure exactly how you'd frame that. But there are places where we can, we can u- be usefully partnered with Indian firms and the Indian government. And look, we spent a lot of years arguing about rectopamine and pork with the Taiwanese trade officials in that in a in a trade investment framework agreement that never seemed to go anywhere. Yet there there are there's strategic cooperation in the tech sectors with Taiwan. It's very valuable to both the U.S. and Taiwan. We could do the same thing at scale in India, and not that we're not going to have a lot of problems because we have always had problems. But let's find a couple areas where we can both advance together, see the mutual benefits, and and do the right thing from a strategic standpoint. That's That would be my direction. All right, guys. We'll come back to that one, I'm sure, frequently. But in the meantime, let's talk about LNG, liquefied natural gas. The Biden administration is mulling over tougher climate tests for new LNG products. 
how is the administration considering changing the approval process for LNG exports? Well, I think the technically it won't it, on paper it, if they do anything, it won't look like a big change. Although it might end up being a big change, the law allows approval of, of uh, licenses to export LNG if the if they're deemed to be in the national interest. And the national interest is a, an elastic term, always has been. And the question the administration is considering is that in deciding whether an application is in the national interest, are they factoring in uh, the effect on the environment, the effect on climate sufficiently as part of their calculation or not? They could very, if they decide that they're not taking into it, it into sufficient account, that doesn't require a change in the standard. It's still a national interest standard. It just uh, requires them to think about the problem differently in each case. And I think we're running into one of these cases that we're going to see a lot of in the future, which is, you know, short-term reality colliding with long-term interests. The administration's long-term policy, and I think all of our long-term interests, is to accelerate the transition to renewables, you know, to accelerate the green transition. That means getting out of fossil fuels. Uh, LNG is a fossil fuel. Now, at the same time, however, thanks to the war in Ukraine, we've made commitments to the Europeans to fill the gap caused by their uh, refusal to take any more Russian gas or Russians' refusal to sell them any more gas. And we promised to fill in the gap, and we're doing that. That demands more exports. And it's, that's been great for our economy because, uh, you know, we've made a lot of money. Apparently, it has not increased prices in the United States, but it's been a, a lot of sales. And we need that because we want to preserve the Ukraine coalition that we have with Western Europe. And keeping their energy crisis, prices in the, in the tolerable range is an important part of that. I think proponents of LNG also argue that, well, it's not as bad as coal, and that it's really basically is replacing coal in Europe. And so that's good. And now, of course, there's another side to that, which said it's if you only look at the uh, it's better than coal, if you only look at the immediate emission emissions, if you look at the whole life cycle of, the, of, of LNG, namely the energy that's used to transform it from gas to liquid, that it actually may be worse than coal in terms of emissions. This is an argument for environmentalists that I think I'll defer on. But it's clearly a case where I think we have, you know, we have short-term interests in continuing to export and in even increasing the exports, even though that uh, runs contrary to our long-term policy. And I think you're going to see that more and more. We're sort of taking the reverse course with EVs, you know, where the law requires us to, if you want the credit, not to use any Chinese parts and components or Chinese minerals, that uh, in the short term is going to slow down uh, the transition, you know, because we don't have supply chains that are capable of doing that. So reality and, and you know, long-term planning keep running into colliding with each other. Well, the remarkable part of this story on natural gas and LNG is that it was, it was technology that made it a problem. Look, I, I remember the papers being written 20 years ago. We were running out of natural gas, and we had to find all, alternate materials in supply chains, and that uh, we shouldn't be building uh, LNG or, or natural gas-fired power plants. 
And then came the uh, the revolution in uh, unconventional oil, the hydraulic fracturing and uh, tight oil production that our that someone who's appeared on the program, Daniel Jurgen, has written about. Uh, he's he's the probably the the best writer on this. But this ha- this affected LNG dramatically. We we went from the first terminal that was under construction in the the uh, New Orleans area uh, was a was a LNG import terminal that in the midst of construction was was re-engineered to be an export terminal. That's how fast the supply of natural gas and LNG, therefore, changed in the United States because of technology. And so we went from being thinking we were going to need to import LNG to being the world's largest exporter of LNG in no time at all. And so uh, without that technological breakthrough, Things have been a lot tougher for Europe during the last year or two of uh, of uh, suspension of of natural gas from Russia. Uh, there, the world would look very different without that innovation. And so the policymakers are waking up to the fact that we've got a problem that we really didn't even think we were going to have 20 years ago because of that underlying change. All right, guys, before we sign off today, I do have to mention that my Baltimore Ravens are playing on Saturday in the playoffs against the Houston Texans. Same day, you got the 49ers and the Packers. On Sunday, you got Lions, Buccaneers, and Chiefs, Bills. This is that time of year, Scott. Yes, you know, and this is a this is a playoff weekend, a, a championship weekend that is really good for the fans. First of all, oh, yeah. teams that, are, that made it to – through the wild card uh, games are quality teams. There's some fascinating matchups. Uh, I particularly am entertained by what sounds like the ultimate old school matchup, which is San Francisco 49ers and Green Bay Packers. Uh, those are oh, yeah. you know, storied teams from the 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, and yet this uh, Green Bay team didn't know they were supposed to, supposed to be nervous about playing the Dallas Cowboys. They're a young team, and for them, it's just another game. And they don't realize it's almost as if they don't realize they're in the playoffs. And and they 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 manhandled the Cowboys, uh, who had they sure got good pretty fast. It was, it was and remarkable. And then you have, for, for me, you have some great home fields that are going to show up. You have the team Buffalo Bills, which are led by Josh Allen, who's a very exciting player. But they were in a situation where they had to win every game, where they weren't even going to make the playoffs. That's right. Okay, and so and so there's there's a great moment there. Of course, watching them play, having the stadium covered in snow, parking lots, you know, feet of snow in Buffalo, New York, and the fans were all there throwing snowballs on the field in celebration uh, and, and shoveling out their seats before the game yes, yeah, started. They, they, they didn't bother to do that. That's exactly right. So you uh, got to tip your hat to the Buffalo fans. I like the Buffalo fans because. When they knocked us out of the playoffs a couple of years ago, they then donated to Lamar's charity. So I thought that was pretty cool. I am excited for this weekend. The Ravens, you know, had a bye. Their first game of the playoffs is Saturday against an upstart Houston Texans team with a rookie quarterback. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I hope it works out. And for don't us. forget about the long-suffering Detroit Lions fans. And yeah, who have a what home a great playoff that game. Is. First one since what, 1991? What a great story that is. Yeah, that's great. Good for them. Good for them. All right, Bill, we won't put you to sleep anymore, but, you know, this is something, you know, Scott and I have to do every year. I was going to say, I was going to interrupt and say, 
tell all the listeners now is the time that you can turn off if you're. Uh, you know, I think they figured out how to use the uh, the, the fast forward it, button. So. Yeah, the fast forward, the yeah. mute button. I don't need that advice, etc. Well, anyway, we will be back next week with some NFL playoff results, more trade talk, and lots more fun. So, guys, thanks a lot. We will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.